series traveling through the life of Joseph. We're going to wrap that up next week and then be into some Christmas uh, scriptures. So look forward to that as well. Um, I wanted to welcome Dot Matthews this morning. Many of you have been praying for her over the last year. Absolutely. Miss Dot's here. It's great to see her. Um, she's had quite a year. And so it's just great to see her walking in this morning. She looks great. Um, our scripture today comes from Genesis chapter 42. I'm actually going to cover, hold on now, four chapters of scripture today. We will get out of here in time for lunch, don't worry. Um, but it's, it's the part of the story where Joseph uh, meets up with his brothers again. If you remember kind of a little bit of background here, uh, Joseph was 17 years old. His brothers were upset with him. They threw him in a well, and then they sold him off into slavery. He was taken down into Egypt. In Egypt, he was put on the auction blocks there, and he was sold again into the house of Potiphar, who was the um, head of the secret service, if you will, of the Egyptian empire. And so he managed Potiphar's household from the age of 17 to about the age of 19, did a really good job until Potiphar's wife came along. She had some different um, uh, agenda for Joseph, and Joseph wasn't interested in that. And as a result of his not being interested in that, she plotted against him and, uh, and ended up Joseph being thrown in jail. Uh, Joseph was thrown in jail wrongly, uh, false um, charges put against him. But nevertheless, there he spent 10 years uh, in jail in the house of or Potiphar's jail or the jail that was there as part of the royal court. Um, he was managing things again. He managed things really well. Didn't see that he'd never have a chance to get out of jail again. Um, eight years into his prison sentence, I'm sure lots of things happened, but the only thing that the Bible reports to us that happened was eight years into his prison sentence, uh, two people came, to, uh, came into the jail. One of them was the cupbearer. One of them was the chief baker. Both served in the royal court. They would taste the food and, um, and taste the wine that the Pharaoh would eat and drink. And so something, I guess, had happened to the Pharaoh's stomach one night after dinner, and he thought maybe one of these two guys was responsible for it. So they did a little investigation. And while they were in this investigation period, these two guys were under Joseph's um, uh, charge. And so Joseph, uh, they had a dream one night. Joseph interprets their dreams, tells one of the guys he's going to have his head chop chopped off. The other guy, the chief cupbearer, will be, go back to uh, report to his job, his old job in Pharaoh's court. Well, two years go by, uh, and this is what happens. Two years go by. Pharaoh then has a dream, and the chief cupbearer says, hey, look, there's this guy living down there in, your, um, in, in one of the prison cells, and he actually can interpret dreams. Maybe you might want to call him up and see what he can say about this dream. And so he calls Joseph up. Joseph interprets the dream for Pharaoh. And the dream is that seven years of plenty will uh, take place in the land of Egypt. They'll have seven years of abundance, seven years of lots of grain, and then there's going to be followed by seven years of famine. And so they need to prepare for the seven years. And so Joseph gives some suggestions about how they can do that. And sure enough, um, Joseph uh, ends up becoming the prime minister of Egypt. Uh, Pharaoh puts him in charge of this whole effort for the next seven years of, of creating, building storehouses and taking one-fifth of all the grain that Egypt would produce and putting it away for those seven years of famine. And so now when we pick up the story, we've come to the end of the seven years of plenty and the seven years of famine have begun. This famine has not just impacted Egypt, but it's impacted the whole region, including the land of Canaan, or what we know today as Israel, where Joseph's family lives. And so they are feeling the pinch of this, needing to get some grain. Everybody knows that Egypt has grain. Apparently that's become known. And so Joseph's family, um, his, that he hasn't seen for a long time, about 20 years now, um, have now come to Egypt in search of this grain. So if, I, if you would, let's stand to our feet for the reading of God's Word. Genesis chapter 42. Um, we're going to read just four verses, one through four. Here we go. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? 
And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. You may be seated. Thank you so much. All right, so what we've got going on here at the front end of the story, again, is that Jacob has, sent, has 12 sons. One of them he is presumed dead. That's Joseph because he had been sent off. His brothers had told a story to the fib to their dad that Joseph was actually killed by a lion, which we know wasn't true. Um, and so he's got his 12 sons. He thinks one of them is dead, Joseph, and he sends 10 of his sons, it says, but not Benjamin. Um, you say, well, why not Benjamin? Well, Benjamin was the son, one of two sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel. Rachel has died at this point in the story. He thinks his other son from Rachel is dead, Joseph. And so Jacob, or I'm sorry, Benjamin is the only surviving child of that union. And so because of that, perhaps, I'm just guessing here, but perhaps in Jacob's mind, if he loses Benjamin, if something were to happen to Benjamin while he sends him out of town, Jacob just couldn't, couldn't, uh, pull himself together. He just couldn't make it. He just, it would just completely undo him. And so he wants to hold close to Benjamin. Perhaps Benjamin's also become a little bit more of a favorite, kind of like Joseph was amongst all the brothers. Um, skip to verse 6. It says, Now Joseph was the governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brother came and bowed before before him with their faces to the ground. Now, does that sound familiar? If you remember the story of Joseph early on in this whole uh, uh, narrative, uh, Joseph had a dream, and his dream was that his brothers would come and bow down to him. And there was these sheaves and some wheat, and how these uh, wheat were like falling down to him. And then the stars, there was another dream where there were stars, and the stars were going to bow down to Joseph. And Joseph uh, told his brothers about this. And so here is Joseph's dream from back when he was 17 years of age about his brothers coming to bow down to him actually being fulfilled before his very eyes. Verse 7. And as soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them. Um, he would know their faces anywhere. And so he pretended to be a stranger, it says, and he spoke roughly to them. I mean, that's a good brotherly thing to do, right? When you finally got an opportunity to turn the screws a little bit. Here he goes. Verse 8. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And suddenly, verse 9, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them, that they would bow down. And he said to them, he says, speaking roughly to them, you're just spies. That's all you are. Now see, his brothers don't recognize him, but he knows them. He's got all 10 of them there. He's like, yeah, there's Judah. There's, there's you know, all of them, right? And, uh, and Gad and Benjamin. Well, Benjamin wasn't there. Anyway, don't, don't test my memory because it's not going to work here. But um, anyhow, so he, he he, he's got his brothers there before him. He says, you're just spies. That's what you've come here for. Um, he says, that's why you come down here to the land of Egypt to spy on us. And they say, no, no, my Lord, that's not true. Verse 10, your servants have just come here to buy food. We're like everybody else who is in line trying to get some grain for the land of Egypt because we know that y'all have all this, all this grain, extra grain, and we don't have any back where we've come from. Verse 11, we are all sons of one man. We're not some detachment of soldiers who have come together to come down here and spy in this land. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Verse 12, no, Joseph said, I believe that you are spies. It's the nakedness of this land that you have come to see. But they protested, verse 13, we, your servants, are 12 brothers, the son of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest is this day with our father. Watch, and one of them is no more. Well, see, they don't know what happened to Joseph. They know they sold him off into slavery. Again, they probably presumed that Joseph had died, not knowing this is Joseph that they're talking to. 
So what happens next? Well, the first thing is Joseph throws him in jail for three days. Again, nice brotherly thing to do. Uh, soften him up a little bit, give him a little bit of experience of what that was like living in a jail in Egypt. And so uh, verse 19, Joseph brings the brothers back up before him and he says, verse 19, I've got a deal for you. If you really are honest men, then let one of your brothers remain confined. I'll hold your brother as collateral. If you really do have this other brother that you talk about, this younger brother that's living uh, there. And so I'll hold one of them as collateral collateral, and I'll let the rest of you go, and then carry the grain for the famine back to your households, verse 20. And then when you get home, you get your brother, you turn things back around, and you bring your youngest brother back here to me. And by this you will prove that your words are verified, and you shall not die. And so that's what they did, because, I mean, really, what choice do they have, right? The prime minister of the land of Egypt, the most second most powerful man and the most powerful nation in all of the world, is standing there telling them, here's what you're going to have to do. And so that's what they did. So they left Simeon behind, and when they get back home, verse 29, they told Jacob, their father, all that had happened to them. They tell him about the prime minister that had accused them of being spies. They tell him about Simeon, about how he's back there in jail, and unless we report back with our younger brother Benjamin, then there's no chance for Simeon to get out of jail. He's just, he's just there. And so Jacob says, well, you know what? I've already lost Joseph, and now I've lost Simeon. And I'm not going to lose any more of you all, of my sons. Verse chapter 43, verse 1. He says, Now the famine was very severe in the land. And when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. So the circumstances have now changed. So at first Jacob's like, I'm not, no way am I going to send Benjamin. No way am I going to send any of y'all back there to this guy. I've already seen what's happened. Simeon is, is now in prison. Uh, but Judah said, verse, 20, verse 3, the man solemnly warned us, you shall not see my face. In other words, I'm not going to meet with you unless you bring back your younger brother Benjamin. Verse 4, if you'll send our brother along with us, we'll go and we'll buy some food. Otherwise, dad, we're just wasting our time here. There's no point in us going back. The man said he's not going to meet with us. Verse 5, but if you will not send Benjamin, we'll not go. For the man said, you will not see my face unless your brother is with you. Well, after a little back and forth between the oldest brother Judah and Jacob, Jacob finally relents. And he realizes, you know, the circumstances are getting really dire and we really do need some food. And if we don't get food, then we're all going to perish. And so he ends up agreeing to send Benjamin back. And so all the brothers, the t 11 brothers, go back to the prime minister. Verse 15. So the men took this present, a gift that they had double, and they took double the money that they expected to pay with them and Benjamin. And they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. Verse 16. When Joseph saw Benjamin, now how old is Benjamin at this point? Well, Benjamin was three years of age when Joseph was 17 and sold into slavery. So it's been 13 years since Joseph was, he was sold into slavery at 17, two years in the house of Potiphar, 10 or 11 years in, uh, in prison. At the age of 30, he gets out of prison. The scriptures actually say that. At the age of 30, he gets out of prison. So it's been 13 years. Then add on another seven years for this uh, years of plenty in Egypt. And his brothers have now come to him in the first year of the famine, add one more year. And now they've come to him in the second year of the famine. So we're about roughly 22, 23 years since Joseph has seen his younger brother, Benjamin. Benjamin was three years of age when Joseph was thrown, sold into slavery, thrown in the well, and then sold into slavery. So Joseph's probably, or his younger brother, Benjamin's probably about 24, maybe 25 years of age. He's a grown man. Verse 16 says, When Joseph saw Benjamin, he said to the steward of his house, Bring, it, uh, bring the men into the house and slaughter an animal and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. Skip down to verse 29. 
And Joseph lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his own mother's son. And he said, is this your younger brother whom you spoke of to me? And he said, yes. And Joseph said, God be gracious to you, my son. Now, jo Benjamin, uh, now seeing Benjamin, Joseph is just so moved, so deeply moved. Again, he has not seen his brother for 22, 23 years. He's missed his whole growing up years. He's missed his whole childhood. Um, and so Joseph is just, um, just overcome by this. It says in verse 30 that Joseph had to hurry out for his compassion grew warm for his brother and he sought a place to weep and he entered his chamber, that is his private quarters, and he wept there. I mean, he just went there back there and just fell apart. Hadn't seen his brother. He was three years of age, just a little guy running around. And now all of a sudden here he is standing before him, a grown man. Um, and so uh, he goes back to his room and falls apart. Verse 31, then he washed his face after regaining his composure and came back out and controlling himself, or at least trying to control himself, he said, serve the food. Now skip on down to verse 33. Something really strange happens here in verse 33. Let's not miss this here. Verse 33 says, and they sat before Joseph, the firstborn, according to his birthright. So they're sitting at this table, perhaps reclined in long ways, or perhaps there's, the, I don't know, it's maybe David or Joseph's at the head of it. I'm not sure how it all worked. But Joseph has ordered the sons, or all of his brothers, the sons of Jacob, he has ordered them according to their birthright. I'm sorry, yeah, according to their birthright. According to their birth order. That seems kind of strange. I mean, I could see where he could pick out the oldest brother or three. And we could certainly see how he could pick out Benjamin out of this order. But to get the middle brothers all right, and they, remember he, the brothers are all thinking that Joseph doesn't know them. I mean, does he have a spy living in Canaan, like going by the, Jacob's house and checking on things? And I mean, where did, how did he find out who was in what order? And he's got them all seated at the table, exactly in the right order. And so they're all, it says, in amazement. I mean, they're scratching their heads on this. This is a very strange thing that's just taking place. I mean, the odds of this, there's a little bit of math here, but the odds of this actually happening, of, of, of somebody getting the birth order correct of these 11 brothers would be over 31 in 39 million. <laughs> I mean, if you take Benjamin out of the mix, it's somewhere around 4 million. But nevertheless, I mean, it's just incredible to think that he got them all in the right birth order. Again, they're just a little bit blown away by this. Now, at lunch, I'm sure that Joseph is just dying to reveal himself and to tell him, hey, I'm Joseph. I'm the one y'all sold into slavery. I'm sure he wants to do that. But yet there's something he needs to know first. He needs to know, have these older brothers of mine changed? Are they still the, <laughs> are they still the same people that threw me down in the well? And now given the opportunity, they might do the same thing to Benjamin? Uh, is, there, is there any difference in their heart at all? And so Joseph wants to kind of feel this out and figure this out. And so he's got a little test that he wants to uh, um, unveil here. Uh, moving forward to chapter 44, Joseph gives them the food. He sends them home uh, with, with another load of grain, um, never telling them, again, that he's Joseph. But here's what he does. He has one of his officials, before the sacks of grain are given to the men, um, each one has their own sack of grain, and he, and he puts the cup that belonged to the prime minister that was sitting on the table, he puts that cup in the sack of, jo of Benjamin, of his youngest brother. And secretly. And so the men, they, they leave on out of Egypt. They head on out of Cairo. And they're on their way back toward Israel. While they get a little ways out of town, well, Joseph sends a detachment of soldiers to go and, and uh, arrest these men, I suppose you might say, and um, to question them. And they stop some on the road. And the soldiers say, the cup of the prime minister is missing. And we think that one of you all has it. And they're like, 
we didn't take any cup. Did you take any cup? You, no, none of us took any cup. And they say, you know, you're welcome to search our stuff. I know that you're not going to find it there. And so chapter 44 and verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack, verse 12. And the commander searched beginning with the oldest and ending with the youngest. So the commander knows where the cup, cup is. He knows it's in Benjamin's. He knows it's with the youngest. But you know, for a little drama's sake, he kind of goes through this thing. So they're reaching inside the sacks and they're not finding anything all the way down to Benjamin. Finally, they reach inside Benjamin's sack and up out of the grain. And here's this beautiful cup, probably um, ornate, probably has some jewels on it, that sort of thing. Maybe it's made out of gold, who knows, but a very expensive looking cup. And there it is. That's the, okay. and so they seize Benjamin, they put him in chains, they take him back to Egypt. And so here's the test. If these brothers of Joseph really have changed, they're going to come back to get their younger brother. If they haven't changed, then they're just going to go on back home to dad, and they're going to say, dad, it's happened again. <laughs> uh, that, that mean guy in, in, in Egypt, that prime minister, I mean, he, he, he swacked uh, our, our, our youngest brother, Benjamin. I'm really sorry. Now we're going to have to split the inheritance 10 ways. I don't know what to tell you. Um, and so, but if, they're, if they have changed, and it's been 20 plus years now, um, then they'll return to get their younger brother. Look at verse 13. It says, here's their response. They tore their clothes, which is a sign of anguish, and they loaded up their donkeys, and they returned to the city. That is, they went back to Egypt. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. And the rest of the chapter is them pleading with Joseph, please don't kill Benjamin. We don't know how this happened, but we're pleading for his life. At one point, Judah even says, you can keep me and you can take my life, but please don't take the life of my brother Benjamin. These guys have changed. At this point, Joseph can't handle it anymore. He loses it, chapter 45 and verse 1. And then Joseph could not control himself. says he cried, make everyone go out for me. He told all of his servants, everybody get out of the room except for these men. And so no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. It says, verse 2, that Joseph wept aloud and so loud that the Egyptians heard it. The people outside of the room, the people elsewhere in Joseph's house heard it. It says, even down the road, down the street at the household of Pharaoh heard Joseph weeping. I mean, this is wailing, crying. Weeping so loudly that the people down the street can hear him. And he said in verse 3, I am Joseph. You know, the one that you all sold into slavery. I stand right here before you in the flesh. That's me. Is my father still alive? And his brothers could not answer, for they were dismayed at his presence. They were in complete and utter disbelief. <laughs> right? I mean, literally, the cats got their tongue. They couldn't even speak. They just can't believe. And also, there's a little bit of terror <laughs> taking place, I'm sure. You can probably imagine their knees are really knocking now. I mean, oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Right? Boy, I mean, of all the people... Of all the people that Joseph could have become, I mean, he becomes the prime minister of Egypt. Are you kidding me? Um, now, Benjamin, he wasn't worried. Why is Benjamin not worried? He was three, right? Hey, I, was, I wouldn't have anything to do with this business with, the, with you and the well. I didn't even know about any of that until right now. Um, I thought a lion had killed Joseph. And so Benjamin's like, hey, I'm, I'm fine. No problem here. And so Joseph senses all this, though, that his brothers are shaking and that they're, they're fearful. And so he reaches out to them. Look at verse 4. Come near to me, please, he says. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, 
whom you sold into Egypt. Verse 5. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. That is to save lives. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but it was God. Joseph proceeds to tell his brothers to go get their father, their herds, their families, all the house of Israel, and bring them to Egypt. For the famine is just two years in, and it's going to last for five more years. And I'll put you up in the land of Goshen, and we'll provide for you. We'll be, we'll be your security for you. Y'all will survive this famine, um, and you'll come through it with flying colors. And uh, so that's what Joseph tells him to do. And then in verse 14 and 15, our last two verses, Then Joseph fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck, and he wept. And Benjamin likewise wept upon his neck. Verse 15, And he kissed all of his brothers, and he wept upon them. You say, you mean his brothers that threw him in the well? Yeah. You mean his brothers that sent him, end up going off to jail for 10 years, living in an Egyptian jail? Yeah. And he threw his arms around them, and he kissed them, and he hugged them, and he welcomed them. The Bible says he wept over them. I mean, what a beautiful scene of reconciliation after 20-plus years of not seeing one another. And then the Bible says, last verse, end of verse 15, it says that his brother sat down and talked with Joseph for who knows how long. Just catching up on two decades of not seeing one another and all the things that they had missed and all the life that they had been living but hadn't had been apart. All right, well, that's our scripture story for today. You did a great job. I know four chapters, not our usual fare, but anyhow, I appreciate y'all hanging in there with me, uh, which means it's time for us to ask our most important question, what difference does all this make to my life? Well, what we see here in the story of Joseph so brilliantly illustrated, so beautifully illustrated is a story of reconciliation. I mean, you have broken relationships between these brothers, and Joseph, you know, overcomes a lot. His brothers overcome a lot, change a lot, and they are able to mend fences. Um, you know, almost without exception, there is a legitimate reason that explains why broken relationships happen. It goes something like this. Somebody hurt somebody. Somebody violated somebody's rights. Somebody failed to keep a confidence. Somebody failed to live up to some standard of performance that we had for them. Sometimes the, relation, the reasons for the broken relationship are like they were in Joseph's case. It's jealousy. It's competition. It's resentment. But for whatever reason there might be, broken relationships don't just happen. We don't just break relationships with people over nothing. Uh, there's hurt there. There's animosity there. There's something, some seed that builds and grows or some event that takes place that creates that broken relationship. In Joseph's situation, he could have said, hey, God, they hurt me. Uh, they did me wrong. I didn't do them any wrong. They did me really wrong. Um, and so I have a righteous reason to feel the way that I feel, to have these broken relationships with my brothers. Um, however, there's a question that we have to answer this morning, and that is, was it acceptable to God for Joseph to leave his relationships with his brothers in that state? Was it acceptable to God? I mean, I'm sure Joseph had every right. We wouldn't blame him for leaving his relationships with his brothers in that state and just sending them all off to jail and that being the end of things. But was it acceptable to God for him to do that? 
Well, the Bible does have something to say about this. If you flip over to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 23, this is Jesus teaching here as part of the Sermon on the Mount. He's talking about broken relationships, and he's talking about the importance of reconciliation. And here's what he says, Matthew chapter 5, verse 23. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar, that is, if you're on your way to church on a Sunday morning, and you're coming to worship God, and you remember on your way there, or when you get there, that your brother has something against you, here's what I want for you to do. Verse 24, leave. Leave. Turn the car around. Leave your gift at the altar. First go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift to God. And then after you've been reconciled, come back to church and you can worship. Friends, do you see here what Jesus is saying to his followers? He's saying that broken relationships make God sad. He's saying that broken relationships upset God. That this bothers God. And there's a very few things that I would... I've ever seen in Scripture where God said, you need to skip church for this reason. <laughs> but this is one of, the church, one of the reasons that the Scriptures give us. He says, before you even come to worship me, go get those relationships right, or at least make an effort to do so. I say, but Gordon, you don't understand. Reconciliation, I mean, this takes two to tango, right? This is, this is not just me wanting to be in right relationship with somebody, because there's just somebody out here that I've tried to reconcile with, and they're just not interested, and I would never come to church if that was the case, if it was contingent upon whether or not I was able to heal things there. I mean, what if they're just not interested? What if they slam the door in my face? Well, God is a very realistic God, and he has a very realistic answer for that type of scenario. He says in Romans chapter 12, verse 18, that if possible, if possible, God leaves the door open to say, you know, in all circumstances, it's not. Maybe it won't work out. But if it's possible, and as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with everyone. God knows that it takes two to tango. God understands that it may not always be possible to reconcile every relationship you have. But as much as it depends on you, God understands that we cannot control what somebody else does, that we cannot control what somebody else thinks, that we cannot control what somebody else wants to hold on to. But I can control me, and you can control you. And that's what this verse is saying. That in as much as we can facilitate this, and as much as we can do, that we need to try to reconcile. Say, Gordon, this is all really wonderful. I mean, it makes for a really nice story about reconciliation, but I live in the real world. <laughs> I'm not sure that that's the real world. And uh, in the real world, I mean, people like fire shots and then take names afterwards, right? And uh, I just don't, I don't know that this can really work out. I mean, kind of like the way God, like I see it work out in Joseph's story. I, I just don't know that this can really happen. Um, well, Jesus Christ is asking us to live this way. Matthew chapter 5, 23 and 24. Part of the greatest sermon ever preached, right? Jesus Christ is asking us to live this way. And he would not ask us to live this way if he did not think that reconciliation were possible. So what I want to give you here is time I got left is four practical suggestions to help this become real life, to help reconciliation become real life in your life and mine. Just four. Number one, we need to realize as Christians that forgiveness is not optional. That as Christians, forgiveness is not optional. You know, when we look in the Bible, there are some things that are not optional. Um, you go to Exodus chapter 20, for example, you discover the 10 suggestions. 
So the Ten Commandments, right? These are not optional. God wants for us, expects for us to live this way. Non-negotiables. And forgiveness is one of these non-negotiables in Scripture. For example, listen to these verses. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 32. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as, Christ, as God in Christ forgave you. Colossians 3 and verse 13. Bearing with one another, and if one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you should forgive one another. You know, that last statement doesn't leave a whole lot of wiggle room, does it? Um, as the Lord forgave you, so you must forgive others. I mean, how did Jesus forgive us? Fully, over and over, for dumb and stupid things as well, <laughs> uh, for terrible things. Jesus forgave us completely. And so the Bible is saying here, just the way Jesus forgave you and I, we need to be willing to forgive. Now, I'm not saying that this is hard, and I'm not saying that this won't be difficult, because it is and it will be. But when we realize that as Christians, that forgiveness to the degree that Jesus forgave us is not optional, it changes our perspective on forgiveness. Forgiveness is not based on how you and I feel. It is based on an understanding of how much Jesus Christ has forgiven us. Let me say that again. Forgiveness is not based on how you and I feel. It is based on the degree to which Jesus Christ forgave us. And as much as he forgave us, we need to be willing to forgive others. Friends, this is where reconciliation starts. Without a willingness to forgive, true reconciliation can never happen. Step two, number two. We need to realize our part in the broken relationship. You say, what do you mean my part? I mean, I didn't do this. They did this. Joseph could say they threw me in the well. I mean, this was her fault. This was his fault. This was their fault. This wasn't my fault. What are you talking about? What, do you, what, is, what does my part have to do with any of this? Well, I bet if I asked the other person that you're talking about that same question about how they need to own some of their part in the situation, they'd probably say the same thing. What do you mean my fault? What do you mean my part? It's not my part. It's, it's, their, it's them. It's, it's her. It's him. It's, it's what they did. They'd say the same thing. That's why the Bible says, Proverbs 16 and verse 2, that all the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. Think about that. All the ways of a man are pure in his own eyes. What that means is that humanity has a knack for self-justification and for sanitizing ourselves and for absolving ourselves of any wrongdoing. Friends, in most, almost every broken relationship, it is never one person who is all wrong and the other person who is all right. Now, there's a, some circumstances where that is the case. For example, in childhood abuse, I mean, in that situation, the child is all right and the offender is all wrong. But there are, in most cases in life where broken relationships happen, it's not all one person uh, is right and all one person is, is wrong. Um, I think I said that right. Yeah, that's right. Or wrong. And so therefore, it is when you and I begin saying, okay, you know what? Maybe I was part of the problem. It's when we begin to say, you know what? Maybe I do have some, something to own in why the relationship is where it is today. Friends, it's when we are ready to humble ourselves like that, that's when reconciliation can take place. Joseph did that, didn't he? I'm sure there were plenty of times as he was off into slavery or when he was sitting there in that jail cell when he thought, you know what? I probably shouldn't have shot my mouth off the way I did about that coat that my dad gave me and walked around and paraded it around in front of my brothers. And I probably shouldn't have said anything to them about that dream, about them bowing down to me. Maybe that was not 
maybe that incited some of their jealousy and incited some of their animosity toward me. Perhaps some of this was my fault. All right, well, step number three. Uh, step number two was um, owning part of the mistake, owning part of the broken relationship. Step number three is toward achieving reconciliation is to give people room to grow, to give people room to grow. Joseph gave his brothers the chance to prove that they were different men than they were 20 years before, and they proved that they were. Friends, people change. People do change. They grow, they mature, they get more wise, they mellow out. They may see now that they were wrong in what they did to you all those years ago. And they may be now, in hindsight, very sorry for it. They just don't know how to approach you. They just don't know how to say what they know in their heart or what they know in their head that they did when it was wrong. Maybe they were a jerk back then. But that was back then. If you want to achieve reconciliation, approach people that way. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Maybe very possibly they have changed because people do change. Number four and finally, if we want to achieve reconciliation, not only do we need to forgive, not only do we need to humble ourselves, be willing to admit our own contribution to the broken relationship. And number three, not only do we need to give people the benefit of the doubt that they may have changed, but fourth and finally, we need to be willing to take the first step in reconciliation. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, if you bring your gift to the altar and you arrive there at church before the Lord and you stop and you leave that gift at the altar, he says, and you go to your brother and you make it right with him. He didn't say sit around waiting for the person that you got a broken relationship with to come to you. It's not what he said. He said that you and I need to be willing to take the initiative that when the door opens, when the opportunity affords itself, that we step into that with courage, maybe with our knees knocking, maybe with some weird feelings in our stomach, but that we'd be willing to have that conversation. I'm not advising us to rush out of here today, that before we go to lunch to go right over to that person's house and knock on the door and say, hey, look, we got some stuff here. We need to get it all sorted out. I'm not suggesting in the least that that's what we ought to do. Instead, I would say that if you really want to make things right, that we need to get on our knees before God we need to start there, and we need to say, God, help me to forgive this person. That's where I need to start. Help me to forgive this person, because I don't have it in me to forgive them. That means to wipe the slate clean of the past. I don't have that in me to do that. And so, God, I'm asking you, through the power of your Holy Spirit, to help me to forgive. And then number two, God, while I'm here, I want for you to show me how I was a part of contributing to this broken relationship and where I went wrong. And then, God, I want to be able to humble myself in front of them. And I want for you to give me the strength to wipe that slate clean and to give them that second chance, a fresh start. Maybe, God, they've changed. And finally, number four, God, I'm willing to take the initiative that when that door opens, and my stomach's feeling kind of in knots, that, Lord, when that door opens and that opportunity affords itself, I'll be willing to walk through it. And so I'm asking you, Lord, to make circumstances right so that when you've done this work in my heart and you're working in their heart, that, God, you would let me know when the time is right. I'm not going to rush over there ahead of the Holy Spirit, working in their life and working in mine, but then when the timing is right. Because Joseph did this, didn't he? I mean, I'm sure Joseph, when he became prime minister of Egypt, the first agenda on his list would have been, I'm riding to Canaan. I'm going to go see my dad. I don't even know if he's still alive. 
I'm going to go see my brothers. I want to reconcile with them. I'm sure Joseph had this in his heart to want to be restored and have that relationship back with his family. But he waited for God's timing. He waited for the door to be opened. He waited for the Holy Spirit to do that work in their hearts as well as in his heart so that when the door was open, reconciliation could take place. Four steps to help us reconcile. Number one, forgive from the heart. Number two, accept your responsibility as part of the problem. Number three, give that other person a chance to change. And number four, take the initiative, but not in the flesh. We need to lay this at God's feet and wait for open hearts that the Holy Spirit will provide. Let's pray. Most gracious God, we thank you so much uh, for the opportunity to just hear about this marvelous story uh, where a family that was at one time estranged for decades was reunited and brought back together. Lord, many of us this time of year are reminded of strain and stress and difficulty exists within our own families, our own extended families. Lord, may you, through this Christmas season, be working on our hearts. Start with us. Help us to forgive. Help us to own our part in what's happened. Lord, help us to know that this person, perhaps, has really had a change. And then, God, may we have the courage when the door is open and the time is right to step through. Lord, we thank you for your shed blood. We thank you for your broken body, for your willingness to give your all on our behalf. And so, Lord, we just submit this time to you. Holy Spirit, work in us, minister to us. We pray in Christ's holy name. Amen.